Good morning. Are you jealous that I don't have to wear a mask right now? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to be able to see your faces throughout, so I, I think we should have Ninja Sunday every week around here for a while, don't you think? It'd be great. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, thanks for joining us. appreciate it. We're going to do something a little different today. Um, typically, we look at the Scriptures and we teach and motivate ourselves to live godly lives and to answer the call of God on us collectively uh, as well as individually. Uh, we will do that today to some extent, but I think we need to get a bit more candid or blunt about the current situation with COVID-19 and what is stirred up politically as well as, well as theologically in the church. I wish more people were here today to hear this message if you appreciate it, why don't you make it go viral? Uh, it's a chaotic and divisive moment in the church. We have heard for many years of a sifting, a shaking, a melting away of gray area in the church, and perhaps we are experiencing that today as a part of that process. I want to begin addressing the current events and how they relate to the church and Christianity with some specificity and very little subtlety. If your views are generally extreme about any of the issues surrounding COVID, chances are I'm going to challenge you today. So smile, even though I can't see it. Take a deep breath. We're family, and we have to deal with things in that way. I have never led in such trying circumstances. And that's probably true of all the elders. And we've had a few. Uh, there was some fallout in the immediate years after leadership was transitioned to me and the eldership team made its adjustments. We've had some very difficult financial times. We've experienced some significant loss of loved ones among many different family groups among us. I have never had to lead in such a trying circumstance. When the dust is stirred up in a dust storm and you can't see where you're going, and when you're choking on the dust and you can hardly think of anything else except to breathe, it's in a moment like that that you have to collect your wits and keep your bearings. Have you had a moment like that? A really stressful moment when you had to suddenly focus and make decisions despite the chaos. Your car slipping on the ice. A deer jumping out in the road in front of you. An emergency situation where someone's life was in danger. Anyone ever been in quicksand? <laughs> A moment where you have to set aside your feelings long enough to do whatever it is that needs to be done. Many of our emergency personnel can relate to that sensation. That's what this moment in our world is like. The chaos has been stirred. It's hard to remember where we were going before all this happened. It's hard to see beyond it. It's hard not to cave in to anger and fear. When I was in Australia last year, I learned about a riptide or a rip current. Do you know what that is? A rip current is a current on the shore that will pull you out to sea if you get caught in it, and they mark it with flags on the shore. For this landlubber Montanan, that's a terrifying thought. But for them, it's their way of life. If you get caught in a rip current, do you know what you do? 
Some, particularly Montanans that aren't familiar with the ocean, would try and swim against the current and try and get back to shore. Often to their demise, they get pulled under and drown. The proper thing to do is relax. Let the current carry you out and it will change direction. It will normalize and you can move horizontally or back to the shore. Often our normal reaction is to begin to flail and to fight. But we have to keep our wits about us in order to keep our head above the water. I'm hoping you're taking my meaning. The current is pulling hard and we're beginning to flail and to fight. We are the church. We are God's adopted children. We have died to ourselves and have joined ourselves to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are Christians. Our Christian identity is paramount over all other ways of identifying ourselves. Whether it be your surname, whether it's being American, or whatever nationality, whatever personality profile you are on the Enneagram, whatever political affiliations you have, we are first and primarily Christian. It informs and has authority over all other ways in which we identify ourselves. All other aspects of who we are as people is subservient to the fact that we are Christ followers. When the dust storm rages and blinds and disorients, when the riptide sweeps us out to sea, we calmly collect ourselves and remember our God is on the throne. And he has given us his word and his spirit to guide us, to comfort us, to heal us, and to teach us, to draw us close to his heart. When faced with the adversity in life, whether as an individual struggling with individual problems or collectively like the whole world is today, we turn to what God has said to us, what he has taught us, and that is what we act upon. He is our God. He is the authority. He is sovereign over all the universe, and his plans will not be thwarted. I'm so glad that earlier this year we were inspired by the Holy Spirit to establish and teach on the authority of Scripture, because we really need it right now. A few, few weeks back, I mentioned the process of uh, refining. Metal like gold or silver is heated up, to the point of melting, which is extremely hot, I might add, in order for the impurities in the metal to rise to the surface so they can be scraped off and removed. Let's look at a few scriptures that refer to this process as it relates to us and God. Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and I believe this is a prophecy of Christ. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Us. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, who's my, who's me, who's I, who's the speaker? God. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. There are many scriptures that refer to this process. God will try his people to purge impurity and to strengthen faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This fire we find ourselves in today is doing just that. It is bringing some ugly things to the surface, and it's challenging our faith. I want to talk about a number of them specifically today. I want to talk about them in light of God's word and in light of God's character. After all, we are the church. I am a leader in the church. I'm not a politician. I'm not a statistician, and I'm not an epidemiologist. Seems to be quite a few of those these days. My responsibility and that of the church collectively is to teach and relate to people in such a way as to urge them towards God and godly living. When faced with the refining process, we turn to the word of God for truth. We need it in order to be able to keep our orientation and our wits about us. The first thing I want to talk about is our attitude as a church about politics and patriotism. For some of you, this is a passion, and you probably often wonder where I stand politically, noticing that I am very resistant to using my authority in the pulpit to influence you on political issues. And that is just it. God did not give me or the elders a position of authority in the body of Christ in order to be a puppet for any politician or political agenda. In my opinion, it would be offensive to God to make this one day a week in which the saints gather to praise God and to be unified to push any kind of secular political agenda. I think it would be an irresponsible use of authority. Besides, I think that if the truth of God's word doesn't help you shape your worldview, then certainly my opinions won't either. By worshiping God and letting his word transform us, the rest of our lives falls into place. Our relationships, our politics, our worldview, our compassion for others, etc. Some argue that by not speaking about political issues, we're just being weak, taking the easy road, or inadvertently advocating the secular humanist philosophy or liberalism by not making political issues a priority. I disagree. There is no more powerful argument for every aspect of our lives than the word of God. What do I think about abortion? 
What does God say? What do I think about independence? What does God say? What do I think about homosexuality? What does God say? What do I think about the freedom of speech? What does God say? What do I think about all the sexuality outside of marriage and the decline of marriage? What does God say? What do I think about COVID-19 and all the issues surrounding it? What do I think about Black Lives Matter? Black Lives Matter. What does God say? If we have a steady diet of relationship with God through his word and through prayer and by listening to the Holy Spirit, then every other sub-identity we discussed earlier will be shaped by the very words of God. As an under-shepherd of the good shepherd, that's the type of pasture I would have us feed on. Besides, you cannot legislate morality you can ask God about that and how well that works. Can you say the law? That means I can't make you behave by banging on this pulpit with my opinions. It also means politicians will not legislate godliness into our society. It is an issue of every individual heart. It's an issue that requires transformation of each individual and that can only come by salvation, by faith, by hearing God's word. I think that since we live in a nation where we can vote and we can voice our thoughts, then we should use that power to influence society. I vote. I have a political philosophy. I even considered the possibility of getting involved in politics when I was younger. I love our country. I love our history, even with its blemishes. I want to see it succeed. But I will not forsake my primary identity and primary call as a Christian to see that happen. Neither should you. Where you draw those lines might seem intimidating at first, but I don't think it really has to be. What does God say? We have people that are called by God to be politicians. I wouldn't be surprised to see people like Corey Swanson, who's one of our elders, in some high government office at some point, and a number of you. It's a noble call, and by all means, we should pray for people of character and faith to be in positions of power, that it might go well for us and our nation. This refining process has boiled out some issues in the church in the area of politics, particularly the inability to separate our faith from our nationalism. We sometimes put the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution on par with Scripture. And in many cases, we give more authority to our American ideals than we do the Scripture itself. God calls that idolatry. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know how he deals with idolatry and his children. <laughs> he deals decisively with it. He will not tolerate it. He will move heaven and earth to see it cast down, to see himself reinstated on the throne of your life. There will be no false gods before him. Many would immediately deny that they are mixed up about that stuff, but let me ask you some questions, and let's all take inventory of ourselves. 
Does the Bible guarantee you freedom of speech? Does the Scripture emphasize your rights and your defense of them? Does the Bible encourage independence? Freedom of religion? You can ask Solomon how that worked out. Democracy? The right to bear arms? Do you spend more time, energy, passion, and emotion on political debate, complaining on social media, or otherwise focused on the circumstances rather than you do on gospel-centric concepts? Do you want the church to engage in civil disobedience? Does the scripture or the character of God support civil disobedience, otherwise known as law-breaking? Those of you that do like that idea, have you liked what's going on with civil disobedience in the cities of Portland or Seattle where other people believe they're standing up for their rights in the same manner? It is not a simple situation at all. When do we stand up for our rights? Well, let's just scratch the surface on that issue. Let's start by remembering and being thankful that we are living in a moment of time and a place that most anyone ever born in the history of the world would envy. Even today, the place we live is desirable above almost any nation on earth and state, I might add. Very few, if anyone else, enjoy more freedom, more prosperity, more opportunity than we do. We must be cautious that we do not become ungrateful grumblers when we have it better than 99.999% of all humans that have ever existed. We must not take on the attitude of spoiled children. We are tremendously blessed. We must also keep in mind that there are many responsibilities we carry and we must manage them all well. We are specifically instructed by the scripture to look out for the interests of everyone, not just ourselves. We are told to prefer others even. We are instructed to lay down our lives on behalf of our brothers and sisters. We are tasked primarily with the mission to take the gospel message and lifestyle wherever we find ourselves. While some believe in the mission of taking democracy to the world, which the United States does, that is not the primary thrust of our faith. The day we decide to engage in civil disobedience by refusing to wear masks or social distance, or whatever the case may be, is the day we draw a line in the sand between the church and the community. There will be no going back. We will have established that we are willing to break the law for our opinions. We will have made a major adjustment to our reputation. We will have declared ourselves unwilling to comply with our own elected government. We will have made it clear that we are unwilling to navigate the waves with our fellow Americans, much less so should a real storm arise. We will be declaring that our concern for the people at risk is now less than our concern for our own right to do as we choose. We will be declaring that Romans chapter 13 on governing authority and Romans chapter 14 on being unified despite different beliefs no longer applies to us. We will be deciding that the scripture does not apply to our situation. I take that extremely seriously as do my fellow elders. 
the guardians of doctrine, the overseers of this church. To decide that Scripture is not applicable is not a trivial matter. You must consider very seriously the consequences of rebelling against God himself. Some call it persecution. To consider wearing a mask and social distancing in a modest effort to protect people from illness as real persecution is, in my estimation, an insult to the millions who have endured true persecution and death at the hands of their governments and their enemies. If this is persecution and causes you to abandon your fellow believers, what will you do if the prophecies of trial and tribulation from the book of Revelation come to pass in your lifetime? Don't misunderstand me. There are lines to be drawn when it comes to compromising God's commands. Those lines should first be drawn in our personal lives before they are drawn publicly. I wish that as much passion were being demonstrated for the principles of the kingdom of God, such as making disciples, preaching the gospel, caring for the marginalized in relationship with God as there seem to be for the principles of human government. I find it a bit ironic that there's such a righteous indignation about things like homosexuality, transgender issues, and abortion, when in my estimation the loss of respect for sexual purity has paved the way for all of those things. Many Christians quietly pretend their less visible sexual sin is not a moral problem. We could probably come up with many examples of issues that directly connect to the Christian mission that the church should be active and vocal about changing. Indeed, there will need to be thought given to exactly how that can be done and still adhere to the principles of God. There may be moments and issues that we draw lines in the sand. This is not one of them. Another impurity that's boiling to the surface of this ultra-hot refining process has to do with medicine and healing There has creeped into the church some philosophies that teach that the seeking of medical help is a lack of faith. That protecting yourself from an unknown virus is weakness and fear. That you can conjure up enough faith to bend the will of God. This false doctrine teaches that if you are truly godly, you will not get sick. That if you are well-behaved enough, that God will be obligated to respond to your prayer. It's an egregious form of pietism, a prosperity, name it, claim it, gospel. It bears the fruit of condemnation, guilt, and judgment. It is not acceptable here and should not be in any believer's life. I will explain further. The scripture is full of promises of healing. Healing for the whole of us, from our soul to our flesh. Our God does miracles. We believe miracles happen today. There are testimonies of healings that were taking place at the youth conference that the kids just came back from this last week. That is awesome. The Holy Spirit is powerful and active amongst us. And because we desire to see his power manifested and his presence among us, it leads us to the next obvious question. How do we do that? That is where it gets more murky. Having the word of God firmly planted in our hearts provides us the foundation to navigate this and every other issue. The subject of healing has lots of avenues within it to discuss, and obviously I can't cover them all today. But I want to hit some things as they pertain to this more current situation. 
Faith is not positive thinking. Faith is not passion that can be stirred. Faith does not come from the mental gymnastics of convincing yourself of something. The, that, that kind of idea of faith lies within the will of the man. Man cannot will healing into existence. Faith comes from a hope that can be substantiated by the truth. When the word of the gospel comes to our souls, we believe it, and our hope then shifts to God for our eternal salvation and transformation. Faith is made evident by actions in hope that is anchored in the truth. If we cannot really give a reason for our hope, then our faith is weakened. Faith for healing is a delicate subject. It's delicate because we found ourselves with some wrong concepts. If you do not see, quote-unquote, if you do not see or experience healing, then you do not have enough faith. If you do not see or experience healing, then you must have sin in your life. If you seek medical help, then you are giving up on God. That to rely on something that exists in the world is to deny God. These statements have roots in partial truths. And we all could use more faith. More of a confidence in who God is. More faith in his voice that speaks to us now. We end up trying to apply these things in a linear formula, and they don't always work. They often neglect the will of God himself. Paul advised Timothy to medicate, if I can say it that way. Paul nearly lost Epaphroditus to illness, saying only that God had mercy on him and spared his life. Paul does not correct Timothy's lack of faith for his illnesses. He prescribes wine instead. He does not claim to have the faith to heal Epaphroditus, only claiming God's will, which was mercy in this case. I said earlier that a misuse or a misunderstanding or the misapplication of the doctrine of faith and healing bears the fruit of condemnation, guilt, and judgment. If we believe this approach to healing, then every time someone gets sick, gets hurt, or dies, then it was someone's fault for not having enough faith. We need to recognize the absurdity and the damage of this belief. This belief makes the person God because it's their will that should be fulfilled rather than God's. It gives our enemy, the accuser, full access and the voice of the person's life with self-accusation and accusation from the one who judges their faith. And if the presence of sin were a disqualifier, we would have no healing anywhere ever by anyone except Jesus himself. There's always the other extreme. People will say, if God's will cannot be thwarted, then why do we do anything? It's an ignorant and damaging view. You pray for the sick, you seek the lost, you care for the poor, you teach your children, you join a local church because he told you to. You are part of carrying out that will which cannot be thwarted. Let's glean some wisdom from Paul. He's speaking in Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll begin with verse 10. And not only so, but also Rebekah 
when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, won't you? Just like Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? This is no simple scripture, but it does line up with the other scripture very well. God has purposes even in the bad things in life. Job said in chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will trust him. Can you say that? One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. This is in Job chapter 1. Where have you come from, said the Lord to Satan? From roaming through the earth, he replied, and walking back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one on earth like him, a man who is blameless and upright, who fears God and shuns evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not placed a hedge on every side around him and his household and all that he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand against, stretch out your hand and strike all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, said the Lord to Satan. Everything is in your hands, but you must not lay a hand on the man himself. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Does that challenge your theology? I wonder if we are being challenged. In the midst of the pressure, would we abandon God's ways and curse God to his face by rejecting what he has commanded and taking up our own cause? How about a brief look at this famous passage in Second Chronicles that seems to be very popular at the moment? And I'm going to read the verse that you've likely heard.
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Have you heard that lately? I've heard that quite a bit lately, but let me give you the context. What is he responding to? Solomon had just dedicated the temple, and he just finished the house of the Lord and the royal palace, successfully carrying out all that was in his heart to do for the house of the Lord and for his own palace. And the Lord appeared to him at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of worship. If I, who is I? God. If God, I, close the sky so there is no rain, Would God do that? Or if I command the locust to devour the land? Wait a minute, isn't that Satan's job? No, who's doing it? God. If I send a plague among my people, would God do that? Certainly he does. And he will to draw the hearts of his people back to him. He says, if... When I do that, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, why? Probably because they need to, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Why does he send these things? Because he tries and he tests us. He wants to purge the wickedness, and he wants us to turn from those things. God does orchestrate calamity to refine us, to draw us to him, and to reveal things he does not like. And if he does, who are we to resist his work? When someone is suffering, do we come alongside them in their trial and support and comfort? Or do we judge them lesser due to the presence of some illness or trouble in their life? Is there a two-class system in the kingdom of God? Those that are healed and those that are not? Those that are healed being obviously higher-powered people than those that become ill? Those who refuse to use medical means because it's not trusting God, do you apply that same truth to other areas of your life? Do you refuse to go to work and take that human job because it provides income from you and rather trust God to provide? Do you refuse to go to the grocery store because somebody is providing food there and it's not God? Is that wrong? Or do you not believe that God has provided the natural means for us to be provided for and cared for in all areas of life? You certainly have the right to choose. But consider your motivations when doing so. We are given great authority and responsibility when God gave man the stewardship of creation and a stewardship role. We were given the power and the means to bring improvements to the world. And in fact, we were ordered to do so by God himself. Which brings me to my last subject, which is fear. From day one of this situation, fear has been the word thrown around quite a bit. Some are of the opinion that we need to protect ourselves against a virus. Others are of the view we need to protect ourselves from the government. Fear is a natural reaction to danger and risk. We are designed by God to feel concern when we are at risk. That is not sin. It's part of our role in creation as stewards, an urgency to do something to protect. 
It becomes sin when we allow fear to become our, become our master. When fear causes overreaction, we might have a problem. The problem in our situation is that neither side feels they are overreacting, and perhaps they're not. I have not spoken to a single person who has this, an overreactive emotional fear about COVID-19, not one. But I have spoken to dozens that are having a very fearful reaction to their independence being challenged. Even to the degree that they are willing to forsake the fellowship of the believers by not showing up on Sunday, criticizing others on social media, and even judging their fellow Christians for what they label a lack of faith in order to justify their own interests. The way I see it, there is plenty of fear on both sides. The desire to protect one's life is not an unhealthy or faithless fear. It's good stewardship, like eating healthy, wearing a seatbelt, or taking a shower. In light of the COVID pandemic, the political chaos, the racial tensions, every Christian should be pausing and soberly considering the possibility of misprioritized values, selfish expectations, or in general, idolatry, trying to weasel its way into our lives and dominate our actions. Consider that God himself, not Satan, is refining his people. Perhaps he's had enough of some of our attitudes and he's challenging them. At one point, he told the Israelites he hated their gatherings. He didn't like their worship because they were not really honoring him. God did just fine with the Israelites in exile for many, many years. He did just fine when they wandered in the desert for 40 years, unable to give him sacrifices. And he draws that point in Amos chapter 5. Those of you that have been concerned about the California law that doesn't allow singing in church and are all up in arms about it, I would ask you the question, do you really worship when you have the chance, while you have the freedom? Does your heart really bow down before the Lord in song? It wouldn't surprise me a bit if some of this is God holding his nose and saying, this stinks and I want change. Do not assume that your opinion is the change he wants to make. If anything, question your own motives. If this is a test of your faith and your priorities, how is it looking? Ask yourself, what is God's heart in all of this? How does his word line up with my values and actions? Do I have a solid biblical footing for the things I believe and the actions I take? Mount Helena Community Church will continue to set its sights on the mission to try and keep our head above the waves and our bearings toward our calling. If we were in communist China, if we were in racially divided South Africa, or dealing with the persecutions of Saudi Arabia, we would set our vision on Jesus and his very direct and spelled out in black and white command to the church. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It is our priority, and it has been for many that have gone before us. Many even have laid down their estates, their liberties, their heritage, and even their very lives for this gospel. 
We are asking you to please make every effort to be unified. You do not have to agree on everything in order to be unified. Please count the cost of your comments and your actions before you engage them and damage your credibility with others. Please hold biblical principle in higher regard than any other principle by which you choose to operate. If you are passionate about any aspect of this, then please challenge yourself to verify that your attitude and views line up with God. Not according to some assumption, but according to his word. Let's get our head above the riptide. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and see that it is part of God's design to carry us together to our various destinations as Mount Helena Community Church. Would you stand? And I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you that in all the calamity and the chaos, in the rise and fall of nations, in our flawed and frail humanity that is us, God, that you still fulfill your sovereign purposes, that you won't be thwarted. Lord, we submit ourselves to you individually and together collectively, Lord, and ask that you lead us in power and purpose towards your calling on us. Help us in our battle. Like BG preached a couple weeks about, about Jehoshaphat, Lord, lead us in the battle and bring us into the spoils of war. Lord, that refined and pure gold that you have for us on the other side. In Jesus' name, amen.